Hello, everybody. Welcome to the No Breaking Podcast. I'm here, and this time I've got uh, Mr. Scotty Sharp on the line. Scotty is the, I would say, the man in charge down at uh, Scotty's workshop. And you specialize, Scotty, if I'm fair to say, in everything BMW that's either small or on two wheels, is that, or maybe even three wheels. Is that fair to say? <laughs> hey, James, it's a pleasure to be here with you on the podcast. Thanks very much for inviting me. Yeah, we work on all kinds of uh, vintage BMW vehicles. We started working on old motorcycles up to about 1969. And then we started working on some of the BMW micro cars that, that are out there because a lot of them are powered by very motorcycle-like engines. And yep. then from there, we sort of work, we're working our way into some of the newer stuff. And now we're almost up to the, the end of the airhead. Well, we do, we are up to the end of the airhead. And we do work on first-generation K-bikes as well, like the K-75 and the K-100. So what, with the K-bikes, what sort of year is that coming to then? I think the first K-bike was introduced in 1985. And they went up to about 1994 for the first two-valve uh, motors. Okay. Not and then so sure what the end date there was between. And we still work on sort of the K-1100s occasionally, depending on what needs to be done to them. But I, I just have a personal love for the K-Bikes, so not too many people out there working on them, but um, we love them. Of course, of course. So, Scotty, if we, if we take a step back from Scotty's workshop, how did you sort of first sort of get into this sort of automotive space? I mean, what was the driving factor for you and to sort of cause this sort of passion to sort of send you in this direction? I've always had a love for vintage motorcycles. I've always been a motorcyclist since I was a little kid. and when I moved out to California in about 1997, um, I I had a I brought my Yamaha with me. It's a 1982 Yamaha Seika 650. I've had that bike forever. I still have it, and I love it. But I when I you know about 10 years after being here, I met some friends, and they were into vintage motorcycling. And you know I didn't realize it at the time, but I I was a vintage motorcyclist because all my motorcycles were old. But um, I wanted to get involved and do some of the rides that, that are available in Northern California. And many of them require that you have an older motorcycle. And so uh, one of the rides that I was really particularly interested in is the Moto Melee, which um, was one of my first uh, vintage motorcycle rides and really introduced me to most of my friends that I, that I currently have in Northern California to this day. And in, in coming, you know, I was trying to figure out what type of motorcycle should I ride on the, the on the melee. It's a very arduous ride. It's three days, about a thousand miles, and some of the really rough roads, roughest roads in California. And so I wanted something that was fast, comfortable, reliable. And I just started thinking about, you know, what bikes were built before 1970 that I could choose from that meet all those criteria. And I'd already I've already I'd already owned a BMW motorcycle, a newer one. So I just was more I was leaning more towards uh, the BMW. Plus, one of my best friends, I'll give a shout out to my friend Blaise, who's uh, got a Slash Five, and he uh, let me ride his bike and he introduced me to the sort of that whole boxer engine BMW. Yep. And I just fell in I, I just fell in love with that whole model. I, I I started looking at all the different models that were out there, like the Slash 2 and the Slash 5, and I realized that the Slash 2 had everything that I wanted. And so I started shopping around and found one on Craigslist. Um, I bought this really cool R60 Slash 2, I think it was in 1962, from a guy in Palo Alto, California, 
who had had it since he was 17 years old. And he was in his like late sixties when I bought it from him. So he had had it his entire life. Yeah. Had it for and, a few years. Yeah. A few years. And it, it had been in his garage sort of unused for quite a while, maybe a decade or so. So it, it was in okay condition, but not awesome condition. And then he had also collected a ton of spare parts for it. I mean, I guess he thought he was going to go on some kind of worldwide adventure with it. So he had a spare engine, spare cylinders, all kinds of gaskets and everything. I mean, literally all the stuff that I bought with that bike was sort of almost put me into business when I first started working on old BMWs because I had all these sure. spare gaskets and cylinder heads and things like that. So anyway, I, I told him what I wanted to do with the bike, and he was ecstatic about it. He even gave me a price break on it because I couldn't come up with all the money that he wanted. So he gave me a bit of a price break, and I bought that bike, and um, I just fell in love with that bike. I wanted to make it as reliable as possible, so I start, I took it all apart and uh, started putting it all back together again and try, you know, looking for problems and trying to figure out what, what was wrong with it and what could I make better in order to make it more reliable. And so how, what was the process of like, how long did it take you to like go through the bike from sort of, but that, at that time, I should say, prior to the, the event that you were going to go on? Uh, it took me all, probably the better part of a year to really go through the bike and get it on the melee. And I think that the first melee that I rode on that, with, with that bike, I only had a few things go wrong. Like uh, I think I lost a pinch bolt on the front axle and uh, maybe a few other small things, but I made it to the end. And, uh, and then the following year, I decided to go even further, and I took the bike entirely apart. I took the motor apart, took the crankshaft out, and um, that's when I started really getting into the machinery aspect of it because I had read online on this uh, on this website that there was a fellow up in Redwood City who was really, really into old BMWs, and on Saturday morning, all the dudes you know who are into BMWs hang out there at the shop and everybody goes to breakfast. And then after breakfast, you can hang out at the shop and, uh, and work on your bike or work on any project. And this was taking place at this guy's shop and his name was Joe Groger. And at that time, Joe was about 92 years old. And um, so I, the first time I ever went there, I took my crankshaft with me. And I told Joe that I wanted you know, to make sure that my crankshaft was healthy, that the rod bearings were still good and make sure it was straight and everything. And so he took an interest in my interest in, in that. And, and whatever question I asked him, he had a, an answer for. He, had, he basically had a lesson for me for every question I came up with. And yep. I just loved being at Joe's shop. So I used to go there every Saturday from that point forward. And I, I think for about three to five years, I was there every weekend, Saturday and Sunday. You know, Joe and I would go out for breakfast and we'd go to lunch and hang out with the other guys. And it, it really became part of my life. I just loved going there. And uh, when I had the opportunity to, you know, to do it, I quit my regular job and, um, and just started hanging out at Joe's shop. And your and, regular uh, job is not really in this sort of automotive field that was it at the time. No, it, it didn't have anything to do with that. I was in the technology field and I was the, the uh, CTO for a financial company and I, I designed computer systems and production systems for uh, processing financial transactions. Yeah, which is a little bit different to uh, vintage motorcycles, of course. <laughs> a little bit more boring. Yeah, yeah, not quite as uh, not quite as dirty either, I might imagine. <laughs> right. Yeah, that that was part of it. Actually, I really just like this being in Joe's shop. The smell of it, 
all the machinery. I mean, he had like, he had like four lathes and four milling machines and every machine, every piece of machinery that you can imagine being in a machine shop, he had it. Um, all kinds of vintage machinery that all designed for making things and, and making things out of metal. And um, also, he even I was yep. going to say, it also sounds like he's got more than one of everything as well in his shop. Uh, he 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 had had that shop um, since like the late early '60s, I think. There's a there is a biography of Joe online if someone's curious about reading about that great man. He passed away earlier this year in February, um, not from COVID, but just from old age. He was uh, two weeks shy of 100 years old, and uh, I mean, there's a lot of people who miss him because he touched so many people. Uh, through his, through you know his connection with the BMW Club and just mentoring, you know people and just being friendly with everyone, he was really cool. What a great guy! And uh, what, I, what I, one of the things I really liked about him was his shop and his environment that he created in there. And it was unchanged since the '60s. It's just like all kinds of old machinery, old projects that he had built, old motorcycles, old books. Um, anything any kind of contraption that you can imagine he had tried to build in there uh he was just quite a character one time i came into his shop and he was fussing around with something at his desk and he was hooked up to a ketchup bottle like a, a heinz ketchup bottle and and i and i said joe what are you working on and he and i he showed it to me closely it was a hand pump for a heinz ketchup bottle that you could screw onto the top of the ketchup bottle that would air pump that would pressurize the ketchup bottle so that the ketchup at the bottom of the bottle would be pressurized out through a tube and <laughs> obviously he had spent you know he had spent a lot of time designing it and making it it was all made out of aluminum and just all beautiful somewhere i have a picture of it and i, I said joe what do you need uh, this device for i mean there's so many things that you could be building and he's he looked at me and he said scotty i am 96 years old i do not have time to wait for the ketchup <laughs> <laughs> so that was kind of his sense of humor. It was funny. Yeah, no, I mean, I think of the the what it would take to come up with that and then put it in production, and then uh, hopefully it works. So by the end of it, I mean that's what I want to know. I guess he he used to design all kinds of specialized machinery for comp like major companies like PG and E and the telephone company. And whenever a company had some problem, some engineering challenge that they just could not solve internally, they would go to Joe's shop. And they would ask him, "Hey, can you figure out how to make a machine that will do this? That you know, will do this special function that we can't figure out?" And then he would make it or make a prototype of it, and then he would demonstrate it for them. And if they liked it, he would just sell them the rights to it, or he would manufacture it in his shop. And he made all kinds of little contraptions like that. Some of them were as small as little tiny valves used to um, to move air or liquids. And others were really complicated. Like he t he showed me a valve one time that was designed to measure the amount of natural gas going through a pipe at any temperature, and it would it would automatically recalibrate itself based on the temperature of the gas. Um, really complicated stuff. Um, yeah, I was going to say that does not sound cheesy at all. Yeah, all handmade. Like he had no CNC machinery, no no computers, no design software. All. All of his stuff was hand drawn on a drafting table with pencils and you know uh, and count and compasses. That's how he did everything. Yeah, so it sounds like you yeah. had a someone that would be the good foreman of what one might say as a sort of mentor to get you started in all of this business. Then, 
Yeah, it was that it was the introduction to manual machining um, that really fascinated me. He taught me how to use all the basic machinery in the shop. I would come in with a project like uh, maybe I needed to bore a BMW cylinder to fit a larger piston. And so he would show me, you know, how to work the micrometer to measure the new piston and then how to use the boring head to resize the cylinder and how to use the honing machine to make it exactly the right size. And I learned how to use all the basic machines in the machine shop because of Joe. And I just fell in love with the whole process of manual machining and precision machining and uh, decided at some point, you know, after a few years of that, I realized that Joe wasn't going to be with us forever and that I really needed to get my own shop together because I can't, I couldn't keep using Joe's shop for my mm -hmm. business. And so I started my my main goal was to try to build up a shop just like joe's as quickly as possible and so i went on like a buying spree and and just started hunting around for vintage machinery that that i fell in love with joe even came with me a couple of times to look at machinery and gave me a stamp of approval or told me that it was too worn out or something like that and um uh in a, in a short amount of time i was able to build my own machine shop and so what year was that then we're talking here when you've gone from the transition from going from like leaving work um, to transitioning <laughs> into that machine well, shop? I met Joe in probably about 2012 or 2011 or something like that. And um, I started my workshop in 2012. And then um, I worked at my house for two years. Um, I put an ad in. What happened was um, I after that first time that I uh, worked on my bike. I, I got one of the guys from um, Craigslist who needed help with a BMW. And I told him, hey, just bring it over to my house. I'd be happy to help you with it. I, I, I kind of knew a, a pretty good amount about BMWs at that point because I had taken my bike apart so many times and worked on it. And I was just getting started with Joe at the time. So this fellow came over to my house with his old slash two and we'd restored that bike. And he was in the old time BMW club, the vintage BMW club. And he, after I started working on his bike, he told a lot of guys in the club that I was working on bikes. And next thing I knew I had 10 bikes sitting in my driveway, you know, waiting to be repaired. Uh, so I was kind of instantly in business and I was working out of my house. So I put an ad in on Craigslist looking for an assistant. And I went through a couple of different guys, but I eventually uh, got a fellow who told me that he was out of work and um, he was retired and uh, he was quite a character and his name's Scott and he's been with me since almost the beginning of this and uh, I really owe him a huge amount of, of credit and gratitude because he's quite a builder you know he builds everything he can build motorcycles he can build houses and um, he's just been a very good friend of mine and uh, he a lot he, he started working at my house and probably it was a combination of Scott's really loud Harley Davidson and tow trucks showing up at all times of the day and sometimes the evening that eventually got me in big trouble with my neighbors. And I got a letter from the city of San Jose saying, you must cease and desist all motor vehicle repair operations at your house immediately uh, or else we're going to export you and <laughs> everyone that you love to Siberia. I don't know what they had intended, but I, w I definitely was scared of getting in trouble with the city. So that was, and that was 2014. So I started looking for a, um, a real shop. And that's when I found the current shop that we're in here in Santa Clara. And uh, we, we picked up everything out of the house. 
and we moved it over to the shop in Santa Clara. And then things got really big at that point because now we had a lot more space and I hired two more employees at that point. So we were four people. Um, and then we started, you know, advertising uh, to the Vintage Club and we, we, we had a couple of barbecues and open house events, uh, uh, flea markets that we had here. And, and the word got out that we were repairing BMWs uh, all throughout the Bay Area. And, um, and uh, I, since then, we've, we've rented a, a, another space here at the, um, at the location where we're at. And we, we currently have about 3,000 square feet total of shop space and we're up to six employees now okay but other one i mean are you still at the same house in san jose then <laughs> yes i do um, so how are the relationships with those neighbors then from those from five years ago are you back on speaking terms again now is it going to be a <laughs> more friendly do you get to get waves at least when you leave the house in the morning yeah i had an interesting uh, occurrence happen uh, my neighbor might get a kick out of this because what happened was i uh, my my next door neighbor who was the sweetest old lady um, passed away and then her grandkids moved in and they're younger than I am and they're into hot rods and they're into loud music and having parties and stuff like that so I'm really happy now that I'm not I'm no longer the loudest person on the block and well, uh, I'm go, not getting the that I once, once did look I mean you've, you've sort of you've made it now at this point right you can't be you're not the bad <laughs> apple anymore on the block exactly exactly so I'm, I'm safe I'm cool so with that, though, what are the challenges that you find with restoring these bikes? I mean, what are the I mean, I, I assume it can't be that easy to be finding parts and this like that. I mean, what are the main things that you face when you're trying to do, do the incredible work that you do on these bikes? Well, the biggest challenge, um, you know, up until now has really just been learning the old techniques. Uh, when I first started doing this, there was a couple old guys. And when I say old guys, I literally mean old guys who I work with to do stuff for me like for example i i used to work with a guy named chris and uh he lives in, he lives in alabama he's got to be in his mid-70s now chris is the most wonderful guy in the world but his specialty is he's a retired machinist and he was basically the bmw crankshaft restorer for the western hemisphere of the world uh he he was the guy to go to if your crankshaft needed work um, and he did all of my crankshafts and pretty much everybody else's crankshafts. And then one day he told me, he's like, you know, Scotty, I think I'm going to retire next year. And um, that's when my stress level went up because I was like, what? You know, you're only 70. What are you talking about? You can't retire. So that's what I realized. Couple of years left in him. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> 70, so thinking, 70. You can't be stopping at 70. So, exactly. So I said, look, you, let me negotiate 10 crankshafts, 10 more crankshafts from you. And um, I want to be able to be your you know your protege i want to learn everything that you were willing to teach me and so he um he was gr incredibly gracious when without any you know payment or anything like that he taught me everything that he knows about crankshafts and precision grinding on surface grinders and metrology and how to measure things uh, precisely and how how to use uh, geometry to answer questions when it comes to i mean if i had known in G in, in high school that I was going to be using geometry and trigonometry to fix motorcycles. I would have paid attention in high school, <laughs> but uh, I didn't know any of that stuff when I went to, when I started repairing motorcycles. And he taught me, he, he sort of reminded me about all these, you know, things that I learned in high school that I, that, that I was surprised can be applied to motorcycles. And yeah. so um, 
he also sh gave me all kinds of drawings and photographs of all of his tools, which I then had to subsequently build myself so that I would have a, a tool set to use to build crankshafts. And then from that point, I started reaching out specifically to old timers in the BMW world. I went out to Utah and met with Roy Reynolds, who's another crankshaft. Um, he's retired a long time ago, but he used to own BMW of Salt Lake City. And he's one of the original uh, patriarchs of the of the BMW world. Uh, you know, he was around when BMW was introduced into the United States back in the late 50s and early 60s and was a master machinist. Um, an incredibly nice guy too. So I went out and stayed with him and his, and, and his family in Salt Lake City. And um, of course, there's, I, I met and one of my very good good friends, dear friend is Dwayne Ausherman, who uh, lives here in California. And he's also another master mechanic, was around back in the day when BMW first got started in the United States with you know, the Slash 2. And so he knows everything about Slash 2s. And he's sort of one of my go-to answer guys you know when it comes to learning about stuff so I, I basically just sought out all these old timers and tried to learn as much as i possibly could and i also bought a lot of tools uh, i bought all Dwayne ausherman's tools i bought all roy reynolds tools and uh, some other old time mechanics um, if i'm forgetting somebody forgive me but uh, I, I i have a really good collection of really beautiful a lot of them are handmade tools for working on vintage bmw motorcycles um, and our shop is just filled with treasures like that. Now, so obviously the work that you and your team does is incredible. Um, what did you find is the most rewarding that you see from working on those bikes from like start to finish when people bring them in? I mean, what is it that's the real highlights that stand out for you in regards to some of the machines that you've worked on? Well, it's, it's certainly a joy to restore old BMWs and any old motorcycle, really. But um, the, I guess that, you know, the, the most, the most rewarding stuff usually is when a, a, somebody brings in a family bike um, and we restore it. You know, yeah, you can buy a piece of junk, you know, off Craigslist or find an old ratty bike in a barn somewhere. But when you when it's connected to your dad or your uncle or your brother or something like that, and you, and it it sat in a state of disrepair um, or maybe even like almost total destruction from just the time. That goes by, that goes by, and and it's brought back to life again. It's awesome. It's just a great feeling that we're you know bringing something back that would otherwise be lost. Uh, we did a really amazing. We've done a couple of amazing restorations in that vein, but one of the most touching, I think, was um, we did I think two years ago, and we did an, an article in the uh, vintage magazine about it. Some people might have read it. It was. Uh, um, Let's see, what's the fellow's name? Jim. I'll think of his last name in a minute, but this fellow named Jim came to us and he was probably in his mid 80s. And he um, had sent his son in law over to our shop to inquire about restoring, finishing a restoration on his motorcycle that he had started sometime earlier. But the restoration uh, sort of lingered on. And then he was diagnosed with brain cancer. And uh, he wanted to finish the bike before his death because he, he didn't want to leave an unfinished project for his family. But even more so, he had had the bike in his family for the last 50 years, and it had sat in a shed up in the middle, some, some, middle, um, some mid-state like, you know, like North Dakota or something like that, sat in a barn yep. in North Dakota for 50 years or something like that. Because 
way back when the bike was fairly new, his brother owned it and his brother was killed on the bike. Uh, he crashed it and was, was killed. And his father, um, you know, was really upset by that, as you can imagine. And he put the bike away, never to be seen ever again. No one ever talked about the bike. No one ever talked about that subject ever again. And, and his father passed away, obviously. And then when he was in his 80s, he got it in his mind that he was going to restore his brother's bike. So he sent his son-in-law out to North Dakota to retrieve it out of the barn and started restoring it. And when it became apparent that he wasn't going to live long enough to finish the bike, he brought it to our shop. And it was only like a few months before a major motorcycle show that was coming up called the Quail Motorcycle Gathering. Well, actually, I'm, I'm sure everybody knows the Quail Motorcycle Gathering. And we, we said, you know, it would be really magical if we could take this bike to the Quail. And then Jim could come and see the bike being displayed. And uh, so we, we basically just put that as our top priority to get that bike done. And we, we finished it before the Quail. And then uh, Jim came and visited, you know, came to the, the motorcycle show. There, I have a photograph of him that, I, that was in the magazine where he's just beaming and uh, displaying a picture of him and his brother as little boys, you know, 17 or 18 years old on that motorcycle. And um, uh, it was a really cool moment for him when he was able to start up the bike and ride it around on the grass at the quail. And then he had he then passed away a few months later. Yeah, I can imagine that certainly you'll be able to create those not not only the bike but creating those memories as well is truly incredible. Yeah, it's quite a treat. I mean, the bikes themselves are pretty awesome, but we're really blessed that we have the kind of customers that you can bring us projects like that. And um, you know, it, it's just amazing that that they keep coming, you know, because I didn't really know how many vintage BMWs there were out there. Uh, every, you know, when I first started doing this, I kind of thought, well, you know, we did, we've done a hundred so far. It's going to slow down. There's, you know, we're running out of bikes to restore. And now we're, you know, I don't know, two or 300 and they still keep coming and they, they're actually coming in faster than they used to come in. So, um, uh, it's just amazing. I, I don't, you know, I, I don't even know, uh, where they're coming from, but we just love, when a new bike shows up look i mean it's kind of like that wayne's world philosophy right if you if you if you build it that will come and that's what seems to be happening with you guys exactly so what are some of the challenges then when we're storing the bikes that you're seeing now um you've obviously got a, an incredible array of equipment there and knowledge yourself but what are some of the challenges that you see most commonly with the bikes that you're having to sort of deal with with bikes that are obviously like even the most newest ones are still 20 years old, give or take, right? 20 plus years old. Yeah, it's ama it's really amazing the 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 depth and breadth of the type of parts we can buy from BMW. Um, BMW has a division of the company called BMW Classic, and mm -hmm. it's um, it's run by um, you know it, they basically have done an amazing job of providing really good parts for BMW motorcycles all the way back to 1949. 1948 and earlier uh, for post-war motorcycles. You can go on the BMW website, look up parts, buy their part number using the parts manuals that have been around since the bikes were new and order the parts by part number and they will get to you in days, sometimes the following day. Um, and 
you can pretty much build an entire motorcycle just with new parts if you wanted to. There are some parts, of course, that you can't buy, like, for example, frames and things. But we, you know, we buy uh, parts from Germany almost every day. And uh, we, we wouldn't be able to function if BMW didn't have that service. I, I think part of the challenge of restoring motorcycles is locating parts, especially for bikes that you're not familiar with. But with BMW, one of the joys of working on a BMW is the documentation. Uh, I, I have a, a sort of a personal interest in collecting old BMW documentation, you know, such as factory manuals, parts manuals, drawings and diagrams and things like that. And um, I'm even, you know, sometimes I'll be in touch with BMW. They have a division of the company called the Archive, and they'll they do research on all of their old documents. And if you have a question, like for example, can you tell me, you know, what what is the correct plating on a particular piece of hardware or something like that? Is a good chance that they'll be able to look it up and and know what was correct for that era. Or if you're looking for trying to figure out what was the original equipment that was provided on a specific motorcycle, and you give them the VIN number, they'll tell you, oh, that bike was delivered in black with a bench seat, and it was delivered to New York City in you know 1961 on a particular day. And it's amazing how much information they have. Yeah, so that's how they're it. doing a very good job to to help support all their 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 vintage equipment. It's amazing. Yeah, we would not be able to do what we do if it, if it wasn't for that service that BMW provides. Now the other stuff that we have that that they they can't provide, we we do here at our shop. You know, we have a full machine shop where we specialize in working on BMW motorcycle engines and gearboxes, and we do all kinds of stuff uh, in house. Like for example, rebuilding the crankshafts. Um, we do restorations of cylinder heads, replacement of cylinder uh, of seats, boring of cylinders, uh, restorations of the exhaust threads on the on the cylinder heads. Um, we do our own TIG welding. Uh, we have a frame straightening table. We uh, you know we do our own um, body work and paint. Um, just about the only thing we don't do here is the really really messy stuff. Like for example, bead blasting. We do have a bead blasting cabinet, but for the for for big jobs, you know, for a lot of parts, we'll send it out and get it bead blasted. Um, vapor blasting, we send out, and uh, stuff like that. So I guess my other next question is going to roll in here. Is so how many motorcycles do you have now at this current time, Scotty? Me personally? Yes. I can't answer that question right now. My girlfriend is in the room. <laughs> <laughs> so my next follow-on question is then, how difficult is it for you to see some of the bikes that you may get through or get offered and then them twist? How Are you able to, is this, obviously there's always some bikes you can't ever get rid of, but do you ever want yeah, to see, do you have too much of a challenge where some that come in that you feel like, well, I've given it the time and effort, I've put it, brought it back to better than it was new maybe it's time for someone else to enjoy this bike better than me. Is that something that you have a challenge with? Or are you able to do that? As, and then I'm going to guess with your girlfriend being there, you have to say, yes, I absolutely can do that, James. <laughs> I only have two bikes I think that I just can't sell. Um, the other ones I, I do sell. I mean, everything's for sale. I always say people come into the shop and say, what's for sale? Are you selling anything? Everything's for sale. Um, but there's two bikes that I probably would not sell. One is the bike that I built when I when I was hanging out with Joe. Um, mm -hmm. He had a bike there that was, you know, there's one BMW that's sort of the coveted collector's bike that everyone wants. And um, 
it's the R68. It's a, it's, it's basically BMW's, you know, take it to the racetrack bike from yeah. 1951. If you wanted to go and race uh, a BMW, you'd go to the dealership and you'd buy an R68 and take it to the track and win races with it. Um, they're very rare and they're very expensive and I can't afford one. And uh, Joe probably couldn't afford one either. So he ended up building his own. And he basically had a collection of parts that he put together to build an R68. Um, and his R68 actually has an R68 engine in it. And so I, um, I just love that bike. I just, I thought it was the coolest bike ever when I first met Joe. And I, I went around Joe's shop and started collecting parts and eventually put together all the parts needed to build my own R68 copy. And um, Joe gave me the go ahead to buy all those parts from him and I put that bike together and that's the bike that I ride regularly these days. Like if I'm gonna go on a rally or if I'm gonna go on a vintage motorcycle ride, it's my R68 clone. And then the other bike is after Joe passed away, his son called me and said, um, you know, I, kn I know you were really close to Joe and would you like to buy his bike? And I was just floored, I, you know, I couldn't believe it. So I, I bought Joe's bike from his son and um, that's my other bike that I just can't sell. So now I have two R sixty eight clones, <laughs> which is obviously fantastic. But also you've got this you, your girlfriend just now here. That, that honestly you've only got two motorcycles now. That's all you've got. All the rest are basically just waiting to be passed on or sold. That's right. <laughs> so with um, having as it the, you said you've got several departments. From what I could read and, and understand is you've got the vintage workshop the classic workshop, the paint shop, and the machine shop. Is that still correct? That's right. And then I understand that you also, not only do you have people coming in and bringing their bikes and so forth, but you also have parts shipped to you that you specialize in and sort of refurbishing and bringing back to better than you. Is that right? That's correct. So where are these parts coming from then, shall I say? You mean where, where do people ship them from, like transmissions and things like that? Yeah, where are you getting them from? Because I understand it's like not just here, like say like Los Angeles. It's like all over the world, oh. right? Yeah, the farthest one that we had shipped in came from Mexico City, Mexico. We actually have a pretty good contingent there in Mexico City that uses our services for gearboxes and engines. And mm -hmm. uh, we just had a couple of guys here this morning picking up a bike being shipped out to Malaysia. They just put it on a U-Haul truck and they're taking it over to the dock now. So, I mean, that must be rewarding knowing that you've got bikes you've worked on that are like traveling all over the globe. It's pretty cool, primarily just because I, I have not been able to take advantage of it yet, which, but, but I, at some point I hope to, but I just literally have friends all over the world that I know through the workshop. And like, if I wanted to go traveling in like Singapore or China or something like that, I can literally pull up my list of customers and say, hey, you got a spare bed or, you know, um, spare motorcycle I can borrow. Um, that's kind of cool. And uh, at some point, I, I hope to be able to leverage that and maybe do some traveling and visiting different people in different countries. Certainly. I mean, I know that from obviously my experience, the motorcycle communities, everyone seems to be incredibly uh, friendly, uplifting, and they always want to help out. And they're always really encouraging Absolutely. other people to ride. And and that's one thing I have to say about the community. It's, it's a wonderful community to be a part of. And it's, and you, as you said, you being this exceptionally great niche here and helping all these people, it's a fantastic thing to be. All of my closest friends that I have now, I met through motorcycling. 
and uh, you know, I, when I go out socially, it's usually because we're doing something motorcycle related. And then, so moving forward, then, what's the aside from you when you eventually are able to get a little break there? What are your plans in regards to Scottish Workshop? What else have you got on the agenda there? Well, um, right now, I think our biggest plan is uh, we're just going to try to stabilize, you know, the, the workshop, and uh, we're always looking for more people to join the workshop. Um, the, our biggest challenge at the moment is that we're located in Silicon Valley, so. Um, it's, it's kind of an expensive place to be real estate wise and it's an expensive cost of living being around here. Our, our current um, plan is to uh, try to relocate the workshop someplace where the cost of living is a little bit less and we're going to try to attract some more very skilled and uh, very talented technicians and craftsmen and craftswomen possibly to uh, work at the workshop because we really would like to find more craftspeople to join us as technicians and, and, and work at the workshop. And, you know, a lot of times it's, it's, I've talked to people and they're from different parts of the country or whatever. And just the prospect of moving to San Jose, California or thereabouts is just financially impossible. So, you know, if, if, if anybody's interested in joining the workshop and you, and you are really, really passionate about old BMWs and you've, you've been apprehensive about moving because of our location, then I would encourage you to get in touch with me and, and I can tell you a little bit more about our future plans for moving to a much a, a, like a lower cost of living environment, but still not too far away from where we are now. Yeah, I mean, I will say California is a lovely place to live, but the sunshine tax is kind of expensive. And in the Bay Area in particular, I know from experience, is also very, very, very expensive. Not saying obviously Los Angeles is cheap, but it's it's all it's all rather pricey these days. Yeah. But I mean, it's not only the, the bikes that you work on as well, it's the, the micro cars as well, right? That's right, yeah. The space has been at a premium for us. So we currently have like about 3,000 square feet of space. And it is, if anybody's ever seen our workshop, it's like going in, uh, into the inside of a ship. You know, it's like everything's just packed in here. Uh, it's quite organized, but it's very tight. And we really could use some more space, especially for working on the cars. It'd be nice to have a couple of hydraulic lifts for getting the cars up in the air. And um, it would be nice to be able to have different, a little bit more space for doing some of the stuff that requires more space, like welding, for example. Um, mm -hmm. We just don't have the space for it right now. But uh, I will say, with that being in mind, Scotty, where's the best place for people to find you and your team online? Our website is Scotty's Workshop, and that's S-C-O-T-T-I-E-S, workshop.com. And then... What about uh, that? Must be someone calling now for pricing another order with you by the sound of it, I'm guessing. Yeah, that's somebody calling right now. Sorry about that. Don't worry about it. But what about online on social media? Have you got any pages on Instagram or anything like that? Yeah, you can find us on Instagram at Scotty Sharp, S C O T T I E, S H A R P E, D D, as in David David or Daily Driver dot com or no dot com, just <laughs> Scotty Sharp D D. And on Facebook, Perfect. we're located at Scotty's Workshop. Wonderful. Well, Scotty, it's been a real pleasure talking us through this. I mean, it's fantastic. The workshop's incredible. Um, Jim, I'm really looking forward to hearing and seeing where this goes. I mean, I'm expecting just more and more big things coming from you guys. Thank you, James. It's really nice, and it's been a pleasure speaking with you. I really appreciate it. And for all the listeners out there, obviously, if you want to work on vintage BMWs, 
definitely reach out to Scotty. I'm sure he'd love to have a conversation with you at least to go from there. But uh, also make sure you give him a follow on the social media on Facebook and Instagram and check out his website. While you're out there on the computer, please feel free to leave a review here for No Breaking. I like to recommend out of five, you give a minimum of five stars. Um, say some positive words. You can find us, obviously, at No Breaking on Instagram and Facebook. Uh, you can always feel free to drop me a note whenever you want to, and I'll happily respond. I'd like to hear about new guests or anyone we'd like to talk to, please let me know. But again, Scotty, thank you so much for taking the time. Everyone listening, thank you so much for listening, and uh, I'll just see you next time. Thanks, everyone. Bye-bye. Thank you very much, Shane.